Now, we seem to have an economic trend that is reversing the importance of location. It's now possible for many people to operate from any location through their laptop. They're doing a job that's software-based or predominantly using computer systems or even, you know, some design creative jobs that you can, where you can create art digitally. It's becoming much easier to become a digital nomad and to shop around in terms of your jurisdiction. And I think this is a really good thing for the free cities movement because the whole premise of free cities is that it is more powerful to vote with your feet. Are you or your loved ones looking to secure and manage your Bitcoin with confidence? The Bitcoin Advisor is your premier destination for professional Bitcoin management, helping you buy, secure and manage your Bitcoin so you can own intergenerational wealth and sleep easy. With a reputation built on unparalleled security, strategic planning and comprehensive client education, the Bitcoin Advisor team have managed over $1 billion in assets without losing a single Satoshi since 2016. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or a seasoned investor, the Bitcoin Advisor team are there to guide you every step of the way. So please click on the link below to organize yourself a consultation and include the name Carrie, C-A-R-R-I, in the referral code so that they know that I've sent you their way. Hello and totally delighted to have with me today Peter Young, who is Managing Director of Free Cities Foundation. Thrilled to have you here with me. Welcome to Bitcoin People, Peter. Hi, Carrie. It's uh, great to be on. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Uh, I've, I think you know the little bit of background, which was I was catching up with Daz from Looking Glass Education recently, and we ended up talking about Free Cities somewhere along the line. And I was enthusing about your organization and the work that you do. And Daz said to me, you know that I know Peter and I can put you in contact. And I jumped up and down with excitement and went, please, please do. And that was only about, that was only, that was less than a week ago. And he put me in contact with you and we managed to organize this really quickly. So I'm really excited. Yeah, it's great to be on it. He reached out, Daz and Sebart. The great guys. We've worked with them on a course recently at Looking Glass Education. So I'm pleased that's led to this connection and we're talking today. Uh, I've been through your course and we're going to get to it. I want to talk first and foremost about freedom. And I want to talk about <laughs> how freedom came to be such an important value in your life. Was it always an important value? Was it something you took for granted when you were younger, as most of us do growing up in the West? Uh, or is that so? Is it something that grew for you over time, or is it uh, was there something innate in you or your family upbringing? I wouldn't say that my interest in freedom and libertarian ideas really came from a sense that I was radically unfree growing up. It was more a kind of interest in politics and society and philosophy. I got very into these at school and particularly around the age of being a teenager when people were starting to have political debates about how the state should engage with society, how the state should engage in foreign policy. There were, I had some good friends that would debate these issues in a very lively way. And that got me into thinking about some fundamental questions about how society is, is fun functions. And 
as time went on, I started to become more interested in the economic questions. Now, how does societies uh, become wealthy and prosperous and allow people to live good lives? And why do some societies tend to stagnate or go backwards or turn towards totalitarianism? So I became interested in history, economics, and philosophy. And I ended up, you know, working in some areas where uh, I touched upon some of those issues professionally. So I, I, I moved to China. I worked for the British Embassy in Beijing, the British Consulate in Wuhan, and uh, was engaged in some kind of policy questions there. But it was really around the year 2017 when I discovered Bitcoin, I discovered the Austrian school, that I was introduced to a perspective on economics and politics that really resonated with me and made a lot more sense. So since then, I've been looking at alternative ways that I can pursue a more libertarian uh, sort of set of philosophical ideas and apply them in the real world. And that's really how I came to the, the Free Cities Foundation a couple of years ago. Amazing. Can I back up a little bit and just ask a bit more about your time in China and the kind of work you were doing there? And can I get a sense of just, I'm interested in your life there and your experience of China and communism? Yeah, so... When I was at school, I was really interested in the fact that there was this political ideology that had taken such a hold on nation states in the 20th century to the extent that it had grown uh, to encompass states that account for roughly a third of the world's population. I thought this was a really interesting thing. Mm -hmm. And I, after I finished university, I wasn't sure really what I wanted to do. So I took, I wanted to take a gap year uh, to try and work out what longer term plan was. And the idea of going and experiencing what a nominally communist state would be like was kind of appealing to me because of my interests. Yes. And I had certain preconceived ideas about what China would be like, um, which were more, to be honest, aligned to what I'd learned about the Soviet Union and Stalin, I expected it to be a much more strict, a much more noticeably authoritarian system in terms of the way that the state interacts with people's everyday lives. I expected there to be a lot more symbolism of the state than there was. Uh, but in the end, you know, China, the experience in China was, was hugely, hugely educational for me. I went there yeah. initially as an English teacher before going uh, into work with the embassy. But I found it to be pretty different from what I expected. Um, yeah. China is in certain ways a very authoritarian country. The state has a lot of control over communications. There is no, uh, no, there's a very minimal democratic process in China. There's a single party that Rules the, rules the government. And the state has the final say in a lot of areas of the economy. But at the same time, it's not as simple as China is communist and we're capitalist. In many ways, China is a lot more capitalist, a lot more free market than we are in the West. China's state doesn't attempt to do all of the things that Western states attempt to do. It doesn't attempt uh, to have much of a welfare state, for example, which mm -hmm. in the UK 
uh, accounts for, if you add up, you know, the pension spending, healthcare, um, the money that's spent on uh, transfer payments, it's something like half of our budget goes on that kind yeah. of thing. And in China, it's radically smaller. So it's a very different system in, in China. People associate it with socialism, communism, um, but in some ways it's more like an authoritarian version of capitalism. And there are lots of things that I would critique very strongly about China. Uh, there's lots of other things that I would say China's actually doing better than, than, than Western states. And that's part of the reason why China is growing so quickly and becoming so powerful. And yeah. as people in Western countries, I would argue that it's really important to analyze how China work, works, how it's succeeding and why it's succeeding, and work out what the correct policy solutions are for us. Because if we if we assume that China is more socialist than we are, and therefore it's succeeding, so we should copy it. And I say that's that's the wrong approach. It's actually that China is being more free market and more capitalist in some pretty important areas of the economy that uh, I would argue is leading to its growth and, and expansion of power in the world. Totally fascinating. Okay. And uh, I had someone else on the show from uh, Namibia, and he was saying the same sort of thing. He went there to study in China, and he was amazed at the freedom, so long as you didn't criticize the government. Uh, he yeah. felt like there was a great deal of freedom, and he was saying that, for instance, on the streets in Namibia, you can't stop and have a, uh, for instance, you can't drink alcohol in the streets. But in China, he literally went up, there was a policeman in the street, and he sat there drinking his beer, and there was no comment made. And so, but, yeah. but my understanding is, hasn't there been a bit of a crackdown? I know that Jack Ma suddenly disappeared off the face of the earth. Since you've left, you were saying you were there in 2017. So it feels like things might have changed since then. Um, that there's been a crackdown on a lot of those. They've still got a lot of, uh, I don't know if you've been following all this stuff about the the property markets and all the money that they were pumping into infrastructure that was not necessarily effectively run uh, and is, is now sort of falling into a state of disrepair and not being maintained. So I'm hearing all sorts of things out of China that are perhaps the, the downside of maybe the more traditional idea of communism. Uh, what's your take on all of that? Well, yeah, I was in China from 2010 to 2020. And right. during that period, there have been all, there are all kinds of economic issues in China. Uh, the, the banking system, the financial system is still pretty closed and still largely controlled by the state. There are these political crackdowns, which like the stuff you mentioned with Jack Ma, um, they, they happen incrementally and they've been going on for quite some time. I would argue that as you as you say, they have got worse under uh, under Xi Jinping. There seems to be more of a, a sort of crackdown of people that say things that are against the political narrative. The issue with Jack Ma was that he was criticizing the economic policy of China effectively in a way that was regarded as being uh, inappropriate for a business person. And it's it's notable that people like that can uh, just fall from grace very radically. He was a very, yeah. listen to Jack Ma's speeches and that they were very popular in China. You would turn on TV or see people watching on um, Yoku 
like speeches of Jack Ma. And he gave these very patriotic, very pro-China speeches. And then suddenly he gives this one, it was basically one speech where he criticized the Chinese uh, finance ministry and uh, fell from grace very radically. That can certainly happen. That's the character of China. Um, I'd say that hasn't, that's been the case for some time. It's probably getting, it's probably getting worse. But there are other ways in which that sort of thing happens like at the top. But there are other ways where businesses in China have freedom to to do really innovative things in a way that they just don't doesn't exist in the in the West. For example, look at the rise of WeChat and Alipay. Mm-hmm. Why is it that in China you literally like cash has been basically completely no one uses credit or debit cards in China. No one uses cash in China. Everyone across the entire country, the old and the young, are going into shops and paying for everything with a QR code on their phone, and it's seamless. There's n- there's none of the charges that we that we pay in the West when we use a, a debit credit credit or debit card. That was all allowed because China took a very relaxed approach to financial regulation and said, look, sure, there are the you know when you're talking about. R&B, trade flows in and out of the country, export tariffs. We're going to keep control of that because that's strategic to our objectives. But internally, we're going to let you set up your own payment systems and come up with solutions for, for managing payments in a more efficient way. And they were super successful at it um, because they didn't have the regulation. And we're prevented in, in the yeah. UK, the US, by financial regulations from introducing these kinds of technologies. So... Um, I would say that there are certain ways in which China is certainly very authoritarian, which I'm criticised, and certain ways in which it's getting worse, as you rightly point out. But there are also really important ways, like Mobike is another one. There was little regulation around how you could have doctor spiking schemes, so that grew into a huge company. Financial regulation. There's lots of ways in which China is less regulated and therefore able to innovate in ways that... Uh, that, that, that we aren't in the West. Isn't that interesting? You know, we get such fixed ideas about this stuff and what we imagine, and we, can, we can't, you know, we don't get to see it. We don't get to see it, and we don't get to see it, and we get fed whatever we get fed in the mainstream media, and we know that it's all rubbish because we know everything in mainstream media generally is complete rubbish. And... So it's really great to get your take on it with that kind of insider insight. Okay, so how did you change as a person in the time that you were there? How did either your values change or your personality change or your thinking change and evolve over that decade? Uh It, I think being in China for the first seven or so years, uh, that introduced me to the fact that there are some cultures that think radically differently from Western cultures. I guess it's quite tempting sometimes to assume that the universalism that we have in Western countries uh, is is shared by other by other cultures, like the idea that. Yeah. People are endowed with individual rights and these sort of this this individualism that everyone is equal, um, that we shouldn't categorize people 
or judge people based on their race, but we should judge them based on, you know, the content of their character, all these kinds of things. Uh, I discovered that really the thinking is very different in China. And yeah. that kind of opened me up to the fact that actually, you know, in many parts of the world, there are more uh, traditional ideas that are still, still widely believed about you know, what a nation is, the role of ethnicity in the nation. China's quite like an ethnocentric country. It defines Chinese-ness as being ethnically Chinese. You can't sort of become Chinese through uh, immigration to and, and time in China, and you're always treated very differently. So I get, think that was that was a big thing that, that learned, and that changed my my outlook on 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 life and and maybe the way that I like interact with other people and what I expect from other people when I'm, when I'm abroad, yeah. um, that would be one thing. And then I guess the other thing that's the change would be like the 2017 period when I got introduced to Bitcoin and then spent about three years studying the Austrian school. Um, that's, that was a period where, uh, I did kind of quite radically shift my ideas from being relatively centrist and mainstream to being much more aligned to libertarian anarcho-capitalist ideas. So the latter is where I, I now am. Uh, that was kind of a result of time working for working for a major world government um, and seeing what that's like from the inside and how decisions are justified uh, and then kind of getting exposed to other ideas through like the Bitcoin community, which is at least at the time was very big in China. A lot of people were into mining over there and there was big Bitcoin meetups right. happening. So uh, those things kind of, yeah, changed my ideas in a, in a couple of ways. Okay. So we had that big crankdown on the mining. Which year was that? Was <clears> that 2020? <throat> was that literally your last year there? It was happening then? Uh, when was the crackdown? I think that was 2018 or 19. Really? Okay. All right. It feels like yeah, it might have been more recent. Down, okay, yeah. yeah, okay. Possibly, and... possibly, 2019. Yeah, definitely there was a time when uh, they 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 banned Bitcoin events in Chaoyang, the district I was living in in Beijing, and that, that coincided with the, uh, the ban on mining in China. And yeah, everything radically changed then. You know, not, not all the mining went, but the vast majority did. So where was it at? You're saying there were big Bitcoin meetups. What was the conversation like about Bitcoin? Was it the same as Bitcoin conversations in every Bitcoin community across the rest of the world? Or did it have a different, did those conversations have a different flavor to them? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think they did actually. There's, and it's reflective of the mindset in China versus the mindset in other parts of the world. Uh, the mindset in China tends to be very practical and immediate. So how can I use this tool to make money? How can I use this tool to benefit my business? Uh, what's the, what are some good technical solutions for using this tool? There's less of the, you, there's very, very little amongst the Chinese population talk about the societal implications of having hard money, the fact yeah, right. that you're taking power away from the state, the fact that you're allowing people to trade in a manner that can't be censored by a central authority. This, this tends to dominate the discourse 
when I go to Bitcoin meetups in or Bitcoin conferences in like El Salvador, uh, Prague, um, but in China, that this because of some of the reasons we've discussed around the political environment, you, you you tend to steer away from anything that could be politically contentious because it can have very big consequences. So the Bitcoin meetups will focus more on those practical issues and more how can we use this, how can you make money from this. So there must be quite a lot of people still holding uh, Bitcoin and we don't hear from them much on the podcast circuit. And I've been wanting for some time to get someone from China on the podcast uh, because I wanted to do a kind of round the world series, which is why you know I got to chat with someone from Nigeria and someone from Namibia, and I haven't been pursuing it very much recently. Um, so tell me about their adoption and then what happened with the crackdown. Obviously, the miners went offshore, but still you've got all these hodlers who would still have coins in a cold wallet may or may not be transacting with one another in circular economies or global economy for that matter. Where, what's your sense of all of that, both with the mining? Has mining come back on shore yet? And then what's your sense of the community that even though they were cracked down, they are probably still holding Bitcoin? And what is that? What do you expect that might look like? Yeah. And there, in my view, there was less of a focus in China uh, on like the sort of sovereignty, like hold your own keys, um, cold storage thing. Like the exchanges were very big. Lots of people traded. And there was also, it's not so much a Bitcoin only community. China is much more, uh, I know there's like a strong Bitcoin maximalist uh, community in, in many, uh, in many spheres. And, uh, you know, personally, I, I'm interested only really in Bitcoin and the implications of that rather than other, other applications of blockchain. But uh, <laughs> in China, it tended to be that they were very, there were lots of altcoin projects and, so there wasn't this like philosophical preference for Bitcoin that tends to be quite strong in other places. Yes, and so people were holding money on exchanges. They were making money from, from trading. And in China now, all of the Chinese exchanges have been shut down. The, the, all the mining has been banned. You're not actually allowed to... It's very, the ways in which you can use Bitcoin in your business officially are very limited. So... I'm not. I'm not aware, and this could just be my own my own knowledge. As I say, I've been out of China since 2020, but I'm not aware of like those strong circular economies existing within within the Bitcoin community in China. It may be that they're they're there. Um, I'd have to kind of brush up my my knowledge of, of what's going on. But I suspect that um, they're not as prevalent as you would get you would get elsewhere uh, in other Bitcoin communities. Okay, great. That's been a matter of curiosity for me for some time. So thank you for that insight. Uh, tell me what happened. You came back in 2020. Talk to me about your journey into Free Cities Foundation. Well, uh, from 2017 to 2020, I was working in uh, a job that was kind of associated with the embassy. I was facilitating uh, business delegations 
from the UK to China. So helping mm-hmm. companies that wanted to sell goods and services to China to come out and meet business partners. Uh, a large amount of that work was uh, not directly, but indirectly funded through government. And my changing view on economics sort of led me to question the the, the appropriateness of that, uh, the appropriateness mm-hmm. of the use of funds in that, that manner, uh, because I shifted much more to a position where I think, you know, the role of government should be much more limited to protecting individual uh, individual rights and protecting property rights rather than you know engaging in economic intervention so i kind of made the decision gradually that i wanted to move away from that sector and into something that was much more aligned to uh, my values in that it wasn't you know associated with government funding so i ended up coming back at the i was in China for the start of the, the COVID outbreak, um, ended up moving back for yeah. in the end of January 2020 when things were, were starting to escalate pretty rapidly. And uh, then when I was back, it, it came to I couldn't go back to China because of the travel restrictions. So I decided to um, basically just, just quit the old job and take some time out so that I could work out what what the next stage in life was going to look like and i spent some time just going really deep with uh classic texts of the austrian school learning about that and taking a bit of time to myself outside of busy work schedule to like get into works of uh you know literature von mises mario rothbard and then i started like to share what i'd done and kind of crystallize my thinking i started posting about these uh texts on Twitter, creating like summaries. And basically these, these summaries got picked up by a firm based in Liechtenstein called Incrementum, uh, who do investment that's inspired by the Austrian school. Yeah. And they said, we really like what you're doing. We want to, uh, you to do that for us professionally. So that kind of gave me my answer. Like, okay, I could apply my thinking on the Austrian school to sort of marketing a particular um you know for a particular firm that's interested in the same philosophy and it happened that then one of the people on the board of that company was also on the board of the free uh free cities foundation and uh i ended up doing work with them and then became very passionate about the idea of free cities basically free cities are a way that you can i would argue it's the most practical way that exists today of applying the principles of the austrian school in the real world and the fact that they existed was very exciting to me and i i started to kind of show myself into that work and uh then ended up progressing in the organization uh, to become the number md good for you all right let's talk about this practical aspect sorry excuse me of free cities because i've been through your course on looking glass education which is fantastic it is so succinct and it gives such a great overview of the different applications of free cities around the world. And yet I was left with a feeling, perhaps it was unfortunate that I was also listening at the same time to the first conversation between Sailor and Seyfarine, where they were doing a history. Oh, they've been doing a summary of the five volumes of, I'm going to get this wrong, I think von Mises, I don't think it was Rothbard, I might be wrong, it was one of those two. 
And there was a five-volume series that got into a history, might have been with that, um, of, of libertarianism and attempts at freedom throughout the history of mankind. And they just failed attempt after failed attempt after failed attempt, and they would get so far, and then they would break down and and get stamped out and stomped upon and decimated. Uh, and so I was kind of listening to that and then reading your summaries of what's going on, and then I was looking up what was going on in Prospera now. Am I saying that correctly? <clears throat> Yeah. yeah, and uh, and seeing that there's be- that Honduran government have basically tried to shut down that experiment now, uh, and so I would like to get into broadly what are free cities. Let's talk about some examples, and then I want to come to this question of practicality, because they live and die by the permission of the state. Uh, <laughs> and so let's go through that. Let's talk about what is a free city. Let's get into some examples and then let's talk about the challenges. Yeah. Okay. So a free city is defined as a self-governing territory that has a special focus on upholding individual rights and freedoms. It's a term we use for any kind of territory that is aligned to libertarian ideas and wants to implement them on a small local scale rather than trying to shift the entire pop national policy of a, of a given state. Within that definition of free cities, we have something more specific, which is the free private city concept. And this is a specific kind of governance model whereby a territory is owned and managed by an entity called a city operator. And this is a for-profit commercial entity which takes on the functions of government, um, namely protecting the life, liberty, and property of the citizens, and does that in a manner that is constrained by something called a citizen's contract. And a citizen's contract is an individual contract that exists between every resident of a free city and the operating entity, and it clearly defines what the rights and obligations are of both sides. And one of the important things is that it specifies what fee should be paid for the governance services that the operator provides. So the conventional way of funding a state or a governing entity is that the state will look individually at every single citizen. It will ask them to trap all of their financial transactions throughout the year. And it will ask them to work out or have some work out on their behalf a different figure for how much they owe to the state for what the state provides them. And this is the common way of funding states. But when you step back and look at it, it's it's slightly strange that this is the way we do it. Like, can it really be the best, most efficient and fairest way that we have a multiple volume tax code uh, that it requires expensive legal expertise to interpret. And then we, we apply this to every single citizen and come up with a different figure for them based, based on this. It's quite a strange idea. And it's an idea that has become common 
Mm-hmm. It's an idea that has allowed states to fund themselves reasonably effectively, but many would argue that it hasn't led to particularly just outcomes in yeah. many ways. Like uh, if you're someone that can afford, as a large entity that can afford expensive legal expertise, then you can end up paying a lot less as a percentage of your income than someone who is just working a very simple job and doesn't have the income to, to work out how to make themselves tax efficient. So one of the important things about a free private city is that they have a fixed and low fee for being a member of the city. And this is the mechanism through which the government is funded. And the fee is either just fixed per resident or dependent on what the resident uses. For example, if a resident wants to occupy just a small dwelling in the outskirts of the town, then that's not drawing on very many resources from the state. So there might be a a fee that's per meter used for the individual resident. If someone is is building a large factory and wants, requires more use of roads, more more vehicles, uh, more refuge collection, then there will be a larger fee for that. But crucially, it's set in a contract, just like renting an apartment or being a resident business within a shopping mall. You know in advance what you're going to what you have to pay, what mm-hmm. you pay is in proportion to the services you use from the government. And that allows everyone, that gives everyone certainty. That means yeah. that they can look at, they can plan ahead, they can make rational calculations. They understand the future so they feel more confident investing and contributing to society. So this free private cities model is the core concept that we advocate within the free cities ecosystem. And uh, yeah, its crucial elements are fixed fees, run by a private entity, citizen's contract. And in the case that there are disputes, there's independent third-party arbitration uh, so that there is an equal kind of an equal relationship between citizens and the people of the garden. This episode of Bitcoin People proudly brought to you by BitRefill, your one-stop shop for living on Bitcoin and Lightning and building out the Bitcoin economy and this Bitcoin world we would all love to see come to fruition. They've got all the best gift cards like Amazon, Apple, Bunnings, Airbnb, Uber and much more. They've got Coles and Woolies for your groceries, bill fairies to pay your bills, BP and Ampol for your petrol. You can do your hotel bookings or top up your phone credit or buy a gift or phone credit for a friend or loved one overseas. So check them out today, bitrefill.com, and remember to put Bitcoin people in the referral code for 10% Bitcoin back on your first purchase. Okay, that's great. It's a really good explanation, and I'm not sure that I'd understood all of that from going through the course, so that's that's really helpful to hear. Let's talk about that application via a range of examples because you go through quite a lot of them in the course, uh, and it plays itself out in very different ways according to the environment and according to the relationship with the government and uh, the grace with which the government allows that city to to be autonomous. So can you talk me through what you think have been some of the most successful examples of this because you refer to the fact that there's 6,000 special trade zones around the world, but that's different from free cities. Uh, And yet some of them take on the qualities so that, you know, there's so many different permutations and nuances and possibilities and, and different experiments really. 
that are going on with this. Uh, so I wouldn't mind getting a sense of, from your understanding, the history of some of that, of, mm. of these cities around the world. Is this something that's really a new phenomenon? With 6,000 special economic zones, then that's got to have some history to it. They don't just suddenly pop up in the last 10 years. So, so can I get a bit of background on that? And then let's get into some specifics of, of the actual examples that you've seen that have worked and worked for some reasonable period of time. Well, the idea of autonomous city-states predates the idea of nation-states by quite a long way. And you can see autonomous, smaller states uh, existing across a range of different cultures. Uh, you can go back and see them in ancient China. You can see them in mm. Mesopotamia. You can see them in uh, Central and South America. Uh, and then, of course, we have more modern, more modern examples like the Italian city-states. So the idea of independent states uh, is small city-states is, is something that goes back a long way in history. Mm. The modern special economic zone, though, is actually a relatively recent economic uh, phenomenon. It's mm -hmm. something that we've kind of seen a resurgence or a renaissance in since uh, 1958, when yeah. the Shannon Free Trade Zone was established in uh, in Ireland. And this was essentially an area where the import and export tariffs yeah. were removed so that it could serve as a export processing zone. Yeah. And uh, that was that was copied by various other countries, and then it was really from about the year two thousand that we saw a big swelling in the number of these zones. Um, particularly after there were some, you know, very successful ones like the one that I would say is probably the most successful uh, would be Shenzhen in China, <laughs> or perhaps you could refer to the Dubai International Financial Center as being another uh, an area where. A certain part of Dubai was given the opportunity to operate with different legal code to the rest of the country. It proved to be wildly successful, led to a Dubai's growth. And when you saw examples like Shenzhen, uh, Shaman, Zhuhai, China, plus um, Dubai proving to be successful, you had loads of um, copycats. But the 6,000 figure is really, a, a, that's a very broad figure mm. that can include everything from just places where the taxes are slightly different or labor regulations are slightly different through to fully autonomous free cities like Prospera, Ciudad, Morazan. So basically what, what we, what we argue when we speak to governments is that look, most governments are sort of on board with the idea of having special zones. Um, you know, or, or at least they can see the argument for that. Uh, but what we say now is that look, if you want to have a special zone with just slightly different labor regulations or slightly different tariffs, you just sort of move the import-export tax up or down by a few percentage, like that's no longer enough to be unique. And so what we focus on is these much more radical zones, which offer an entirely different legal system and uh, mechanism of funding the government than traditional states. And of those, there are only... A couple that exist, but that that is that is still progress. When this foundation started, there were not. 
and uh, there are now two and they're, and they're growing and they're growing um, pretty robustly. Which is great to hear. And I had uh, Dennis Porter on recently and he was just talking about how uh, they're looking towards, well, it, it's this kind of Bitcoin acceptance within different states around the US. And whilst it's still limited, it's a start. And now you've got multiple politicians speaking about Bitcoin and wooing the Bitcoin voting bloc and pro-Bitcoin and and momentum starts, you know, the waterfall starts with the first drop and a journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. So talk to me about the two that are underway because, and talk to me about the benefit to the government. So when you have it, I, I want to hear the pitch because it seems to me that if it works so well for the government, any of these special trade zones and any of these free cities, if it works that well to generate business and therefore taxes, albeit perhaps structured differently, why wouldn't they apply it more broadly to the rest of the country or the state or whatever they're the government of? So help me wrap my head around what is the argument for them? How do you put that? And if the argument is so strong, why don't they explore it more fully than that very limited zone? Yeah, it, another really good question. Basically, because if you want to try something different, that's, especially if it's pretty radically different, it's incredibly risky to roll that out across an entire country. That's number one. Yeah. Yep. And number two is people might not be on board with a radically new political system. And our organization are, is made up of volunteerists. Uh, so we believe that the only kinds of interaction between people that are ethical are voluntary interactions. We don't believe in coercing people into doing things that they don't want to do. So a country typically consists of millions of people who may not be bought into this particular idea. So what we propose is starting with undeveloped land that's unoccupied or land that has been peacefully acquired through voluntary sales. So there's no one involved in this project that doesn't want to be involved in this project. It's only made of people that are bought into the idea and want and are willing to proactively migrate to the area. So you have two advantages. The first is if this thing doesn't work out, the risk is limited to this small area. And number two, everyone who's involved uh, is kind of consented to be there. So there aren't these kind of struggles that you have in political, in typical political situations where, you know, you've got a set of policies that half people wanted and half people didn't. Um, you instead have this rolled out on a smaller scale and this limits the potential for uh, political um, political disagreements. So I guess the argument, so you're asking about the argument for them. The basic argument to a government is, look, if you want to attract talented people from across the world who are going to bring um, money, skills, uh, capital, interesting perspectives, they're going to enrich um, your community, then you need to create the incentives for them to do that. And countries 
you know, often struggle to do this because they have a more traditional political system where there's a lot of regulation, there's a lot of difficulty, there might be corruption. Uh, this is particularly a problem in, in Latin America where we work, where businesses won't invest because they there isn't a strong rule of law-based system and they often have to pay bribes to people in order to operate businesses effectively. So if you can create a system where those issues are mitigated by having like a parallel legal legal structure and a completely different incentive structure, then that can create a strong incentive for people, for people to come. And on top of that, typically there is some kind of revenue sharing agreement. So any of the money that is generated by the zone, a fixed percentage of that goes to the national government. And that is, uh, you know, to, to cover things like national defense costs and foreign policy costs. But other than that, the zone is basically its free independent entity and can operate with, with a high degree of autonomy. And so do they indeed play out like that? And what occurred to me is if there was one in my area, I would move there on a heartbeat if I could get a job there and have the right skills and all of that stuff. Uh, do they get flooded with talent and people wanting to move into the area? What's that typical experience? Uh, so at the moment, there are two zones that are pretty close to the free private cities model that I outlined uh, at the beginning of the uh, conversation. And those are Prospera, which is a uh, zone for employment and economic development on the island of Roatan in Honduras. And uh, another of those zones, which is an inland development near to Honduras's largest city, San Pedro Sula, and that's called Ciudad Morazan. So far, those zones have been uh, very oversubscribed. Uh, I'll be mm. honest, when I first started out in the free cities movement, I was learning and I had some skepticism about it because I thought that this is a very ambitious thing to do. Um, you know, it's quite radical and it's, it's, it's like political difficulties. And, and, and that is true. I mean, but what I made my first visit to Prospera in 2011 and went to see it and things weren't particularly developed to that point. There were a couple of buildings, but it certainly wasn't a city and it certainly wasn't somewhere that people were like actively living. It wasn't that full. And then I went back a year later and it was amazing to see the difference. Uh, they, the, the space that, that they had for businesses to operate was completely full. So they, they didn't have space to fit everyone that wanted to, to be there. And they were in the process of building a 14 story apartment block, which is due to be finished within a couple of months. Uh, and that will that will be home to um, that will have uh, I don't know the exact number, perhaps a hundred or so apartment blocks in it. Um, <clears throat> so it's things have really developed in these yes. in these zones during uh, during that time. And the other place is Ciudad Morazan. This is slightly different character. So Prosper is much more like focused on international business and attracting foreign capital and like helping businesses that want to put an office offshore to do so. Yeah. Ciudad Morazan is much more of a blue collar development that's catering at everyday Hondurans that are just looking for good quality jobs in a safe, comfortable living environment. Um, and so it seeks to provide like affordable housing, um, safety, 
which is crucial. Like mm. one of the reasons that people won't, you know, will hesitate to do business is because they're worried about local gangs or having to pay fees to people or, or the safety of their business, like being robbed. And because these zones are run with like a, basically a parallel policing system, they have their mm. own private security. The actual national police are not able to enter the zone. There's a special agreement about that. So there aren't issues with corruption. There, There is a sort of clear demarcation of this is a zone controlled by these security forces and uh, the, the else, elsewhere is dealt with by the national state. Um, and that has proved to be very popular. They have been, they've been very oversubscribed in terms of people wanting to come and live in, in Ciudad Morazan. Um, the main challenge has been the, the political uncertainty that you refer yeah. to, which has slowed down some of the business um, investment in the zones. Yeah. But the, the zones are still growing and we are still making progress despite some of that. It- Impressive. So uh, what is what is the political um, pushback? Why, if it's so successful as an experiment, is it just at the end of the day we want it, we want more control, we want all the money, we want to tax them higher. What's what's the challenge or the pushback that having allowed these two zones to prosper, what's the clawback about? So in early 2022, uh, a new government in Honduras came to power, led by Shamar Castro. Um, this is a government that has quite strong links to the sort of ideologically um, to the Castros in Cuba, and, and the, the previous government was very unpopular. The previous government introduced uh, this this new law that allowed for the creation of these special zones. Basically, they um, accepted that this would be a good thing, a good way to bring investment into the country. And it did, you know, Prosperous brought 100 million uh, US dollars of investment to uh, to Honduras in, in the form of that, that zone um, and created um, many jobs. Um, so the previous government thought this was a good thing, but this doesn't mean that everything the previous government did was great. Like the previous government is a government, they had uh, issues with corruption. This was a big issue uh, in the election, and you know, a new party came to power, and this new party had very different ideas. There's a sense that when a new party comes to power, they want to disrupt the policies of the old party, regardless of whether they're actually good or not. But also ideologically, if you're a socialist uh, state a socialist government rather, and the idea of having special zones that have uh, that aren't in the control of the central government is not something that is ideologically appealing to you. You want to be in control of everything. You want to have economy centric plans so that you can do good for the people um, through, you know, the wisdom of the bureaucracy. And so the idea of devolving power to people, to giving entrepreneurs this freedom, uh, to having less direct ways of um, taxing the revenue is not something that the government the government liked. Mm-hmm. Now, fortunately, 
when these zones were set up, it wasn't just with a simple law because one of the key things that we focus on, you mentioned about history of zones. There are many zones that have kind of been attempted and have failed in the past. So one of the crucial things we do is try and look at legal systems that can protect these zones that, that move beyond the simple political five-year political cycles of most countries. Mm. And what these these zones have is a protection under the Honduran constitution so that it's not just a 50% vote you need to overthrow the status of the zones. It's a two-thirds vote in the parliament. At the same time, these, these zones are also protected by a couple of important international treaties. One of these treaties is signed with Kuwait. One of them is signed with um, various parties, including the United States and the Dominican Republic. Uh, and what this means is that if Honduras decides to revoke the stakes of the zones after investors from those other countries have placed money into them, then the Honduran government is liable to damage and be super damaged in international courts. So the current government is against the zones, but legally it can't just overturn the status of the zones. It has to engage in an international um, legal dispute if it's to avoid becoming a pariah state and known as you know a state that doesn't uh, uphold international law and uphold the international agreements. So that is the process that's currently ongoing. Um, Prosper is suing the Honduran government for attempts to uh, undermine its status and the fact that that has given investors some uncertainty. So. Right. Um, it's not as straightforward as the government could just turn around on a whim and change. We have yeah. put legal protections in place, but also there is, of course, uncertainty when the new government comes in that, that wants to uh, change the what's now the state square. So let's come to some Western examples for a moment. And there's, I, I don't know how many <laughs> there are. You mentioned again in the course about Liechtenstein and also SAR. Uh, and I'm, but there were limited examples in the course, and I'm wondering how open Western governments are to these ideas. There are limited examples in the course. The yeah. examples we do have, so let's take uh, Sark. Sark is, is a small island in the Channel Islands. It's a crown dependency. It has its own head of state. And the head of state was actually at our conference a couple of weeks ago in Prague, um, speaking about how he wants to use some of the principles of the free cities model in order to attract, uh, you know, more investment into the island to make it a more attractive place to live, to protect some of its traditional uh, culture. Because one of the problems they have is that people are leaving the island um, because there's not as much economic opportunity there mm. as there used to be. So the traditional culture is getting eroded and he sees this as a good way of kind of preserving it. But <clears throat> there tends to be a spectrum ranging from, you know, the least developed countries at the one end of the spectrum and the most developed countries on the other. So there's kind of a spectrum ranging from the least developed countries to the most developed countries. At the least developed end of the spectrum, you've got more possibility because when you get to the very developed countries, there's a sense that things are going pretty well, generally, 
and compared to the rest of the world and that the rest of the world should be copying us rather than we should be you know trying novel kinds of political idea that's number one and then number two within more developed countries systems tend to become more entrenched institutions have been there longer they have more people involved in them and it's harder to it's harder to change them so we found that although it's probably easier to get people to move to a developed country because of the existing infrastructure and uh the you know ties that they can have to the wider economy if they are part of the free city it's much harder politically to to make progress there we have been able to make some good progress in SARC because it's such a small entity and we have the head of state that's on board with the idea so it seems more feasible there but um in other countries we have some projects so there's one that just featured our conference called Berger Genossenschaft Mittelsachsen in Germany which is a citizens cooperative which essentially tries to work within the German law to create a community of people that are exempt from some you know regulations and taxes and can kind of cooperate in a in a free way with each other um by making use of the existing legal system there's also something similar in Norway called Liebestad uh they operate within Norwegian law um with the ambition of eventually obtaining legal autonomy but they're doing that by you know basically finding ways that they can circumvent some of the regulations that the Norwegian state has and um, so there are in our course uh, and in our product directory free-communities.org you can read more about them there are projects in Europe that are attempting to become free cities further down the line but right now um it's proved quite hard to get political um traction with these ideas because of the nature of the political system being being very entrenched yeah that is the issue which brings us full circle back to the question of practicality and what your vision is for future free cities and how realistic are those goals a book that's very popular in the bitcoin community is the sovereign individual yeah and the thesis of the sovereign individual is that with the advent of the internet it will be easier and easier to decouple economic production from a location we saw states become very strong during the 19th century partly because we had the industrial revolution and centers of economic power were centered around factories and physical production of manufactured goods which necessarily happened in a certain place so cities became big centers of politics and this allowed governments to collect more revenue centralize that revenue to spend it in new ways uh you know in britain we had lots of big changes the introduction of income tax the introduction of the welfare state the introduction of pensions the introduction of a national health service <clears throat> these sorts of reforms were like introduced around the world and they've radically changed society um now we seem to have an economic trend that is reversing the importance of location it's now possible for many people to operate from 
any location through their well, laptop. They're doing a job that's software-based or predominantly using computer systems or even, you know, some design creative jobs that you can, where you can create art digitally. It's becoming much easier to become a digital nomad and to shop around in terms of your jurisdiction. And I think this is a really good thing for the free cities movement because the whole premise of free cities is that it is more powerful to vote with your feet than to vote with your vote at the ballot. Mm. You know, the vote of the ballot rarely makes an individual vote rarely makes the difference in an election. Often most of us live in political constituencies where there's a big bias one way or the other. It's only a few people that have a deciding vote. And even that vote is often between two very similar parties. And you have all of the complex issues, some of which you may disagree with, some of which you may agree with conflated together. It's it's no way to actually provide a feedback mechanism for what you want your government to do. So our premise is rather than trying to do that, instead vote with your money and vote with your feet, move your capital and move your resources to a location that treats you, treats you better and view governments more like service providers. Because, you know, I'm not someone that says there's no role for any kind of authority to, to keep the peace and to uh, maintain safety and to provide you know, legal arbitration services, you know, there is a role for that in my in my view. Um, but that is a service, and we should treat it like that. We mm-hmm. shouldn't treat it as something that we are sort of bound to pay for through this unequal relationship of, of political overlords and political subjects. We're now in a position where we can be much more uh, choosy with the system we live under, and I think this bodes really well for, for the Free Cities movement. And I've seen just within the two years that I've been involved in this movement, um, genuine progress. Um, and once you've got a couple of really strong case studies, uh, I think people are just going to copy it, just like they did with the economic zones a few decades ago, just like they did with Shenzhen. People are going to see it and they're going to replicate it. And uh, that makes me optimistic about the about the future. I think we're going to see many more free cities being built uh, over the next couple of decades. How many of them are talking about Bitcoin? How big a deal is it in the, say, at the conference you just had? How many people are assuming that Bitcoin is going to be part of the equation for some of these places? Uh, most of them are assuming that Bitcoin is going to be part of the equation. Okay. The commonality with Bitcoin is an interesting one. People often ask why are so many Bitcoiners interested in free cities. And we actually go to a lot of Bitcoin conferences and talk about free cities. And the reason they're connected is because, well, there's a couple of reasons. The first is the the values of Bitcoin. Like Bitcoiners like decentralization. They like the fact that there's no single political entity in charge of the money and that it's a peer-to-peer system that anyone can use. It doesn't care about your race, it doesn't care about economic background, doesn't care about your social upbringing, anyone can use it and the rules are set and the rules can't be changed by a single powerful person. And free cities are the same. Like they don't allow for 
large political entities to, to wield disproportionate control over people. They're a bit like running a shopping mall. If you're a shopping mall owner and you decide that you're going to um, force everyone to wear red jumper to come into your shopping mall, or you're going to um, charge them a fee to enter every time they come in and out, or you're going to require that they fill out a complicated survey each time they make a purchase from you. People will just move to another shopping mall and the shopping mall will go out of business. Free cities are like that. They, they're small, they are for profit, they have a profit motive, and therefore they are incentivized to treat their, their customers well. So Bitcoin and free cities have that decentralization element in common. But another important thing they have in common is the commonality of approach, a strategic thing. When Satoshi came up with a new concept for money, his approach in implementing it wasn't to try and change the existing system from within. He didn't go to the Federal Reserve and protest until Jerome Powell incorporated proof of work into the US dollar. He didn't go and... Uh, submit a policy paper to the IMF saying we should change the monetary system. Instead, he did the hard work of creating something from scratch, offered it to the world and allowed people to voluntarily opt in, which they did to the extent that Bitcoin within a decade became a monetary network, the, the size of which can rival some of the world's biggest national currencies. Yeah. Free cities adopt the same approach. They don't attempt to change the existing system from within. They don't attempt to convince tens of millions of other people that our way is right and we should all change to us overnight. But because at the end of the day, we could be we could be wrong, right? I mean, we could have an, an idea that may not work and rightly people people might be skeptical of it. So our approach instead is to say, you don't have to be a part of this from the beginning, but you should at least let us try. Let us establish a new kind of societal system based on voluntarism, based on free exchange, where we don't have some of the things that people think are, are deeply wrong and unfair about modern society. Allow us to try it out. And if you want to be part of it, then great, because we're you know, entrepreneurs, we're business people, and we want to have as many people involved in our project as possible. We want to have as many customers as possible. That's good for, that's good for everyone. But Equally, if you don't want to be a part of it, that's that's fine. So there's this commonality of like strategy, and there's this commonality of um, of values that I think both Bitcoin and Free Cities have got. It seems to be an extremely natural fit. Uh, it's feeling like it's certainly getting late down here in uh, Melbourne, Australia, and it's feeling like we're hitting towards. Some of the key questions that I really wanted to cover off with you, I feel like we've, we've nicely covered off. What have I not asked that you were thinking in the back of your mind you might like to discuss? Is there anything that we've left outstanding that we should be covering off here? Yes. I think you've, uh, you've, you've yeah, led a very interesting um conversation. I've enjoyed uh, enjoyed discussing it with you. Um, all I would add really is that if people want to find out more about what we do, um, yeah. the best way is to come to our annual conference. We hold it once a year in Prague, 
takes place in late October. And if there are any listeners out there that have heard this conversation and they think this free cities idea is something I could potentially get behind and I want to find out practical ways that I can get involved, then once a year, representatives from all of these projects come and meet in Prague. It's kind of an intimate event. We've got about 300, 350 people. So it's not one of these places like Bitcoin yeah. Miami where you sort of, you know, you've got the speakers over here, the, 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 the normal attendees over here. Like it's very much like an integrated community of people that are serious about making this, uh, this, this vision of a free cities a reality. And you can come and you can, you can hear from these different projects. You can learn how you can become an e-resident. You can learn how you can become an investor. You can learn how you can set up a business there. Or if you're someone that's based in your own country, you can uh, talk to uh, other projects like uh, Montalibro or Bergenossen's Sharp Middlesaxon about how they have been able to achieve greater sovereignty for themselves without physically moving. So I would just encourage people to yeah check that out um they can subscribe to our newsletter um which uh, i'm sure we can leave a link to that if they want to find out more about the conference um and yeah i'd encourage people to to get in touch if they found this conversation interesting and want to uh find out how they can get involved magic stuff well pity young it has been everything i could have hoped it would be it's been an absolute pleasure and delight to meet you i really wish you well and good luck with your work going forward and I, I really look forward to seeing free cities thrive around the world. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Carrie. It's been a pleasure. We have the potential for the most amazing educational system ever. And instead, we're trying to force it this conformist view of how people should behave, what they study, what they should think. And it's not geared towards the best interests of the students. It's geared towards the interests of those that want to protect their power. And then just fill in the blank with all those things we've talked about. Of all those other interests that are involved in making decisions about um, what, what programs are followed, what schools get money, what programs they follow. I mean, it's just, to me, it has, it's like all the other systems, it has, it has been slowly over time degrading and degrading and degrading and at this point um, I think it's I, I think it just needs to be completely revamped and in Bitcoin speak I would completely decentralize it you can't get any more decentralized than teaching at home 